Hey everybody, this is Rob with Local Tri Vibe. Um, tonight we're uh, we're having a podcast that's brought to you by In and Out Express Care, award-winning urgent care with four locations: uh, Hampton, Newport News, Chesapeake, and Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I know from personal experience that they are um, endurance athlete friendly. So if you need them, check them out. All right. So tonight I have uh, one of my uh, favorite characters, uh, Chan- English Channel swimmer Amy Hayes. Amy, how are you doing tonight? Um, I am doing well this morning. <laughs> right. So where, where, are you, uh, you, where are you right now? I am currently in Zushi, Japan, and it's uh, just after breakfast time. Well, I appreciate you uh, getting up early. I guess you didn't have to get up early, but I appreciate your time either way. And um, I'm a big fan of yours. It's no, no shock. Um, not just your swimming but your military service and your, um, your slightly nuttiness, I, mean, I think you have to be nutty to do um, some of the things you do. So if you don't mind um, just kind of catching um, our listeners up to speed on who you are, what you've done, just a little summary of, of who you are, like uh, military-wise, mother-wise, and, and otherwise. Okay. Um, I'm originally from California, and I joined the Air Force when I was 17. Uh, I flew for five years on uh, aircraft um, lovingly known as the doomsday plane. And while I was in the Air Force, I met my husband, Brad, who had been in the Navy for quite a while. And we got married. I got out of the Air Force. And uh, we moved to Japan. And uh, we've lived in Hawaii, San Diego, and England, and are now back in Japan with four kids. They are 6, 8, 10, and 12. Uh, while we were in England, I really got into open water swimming with a group of local swimmers in the river near where I lived and realized I just enjoyed the open water so much more than the pool. And I decided while we were living in England, I was going to try to swim the English Channel. And then I did. <laughs> so that's why, why I'm here to talk to you about. But I've got to address a couple of things first. Number one, I appreciate your service. Um, you know, it's Thank not you. easy. And, and being... Um, raised in the military and then being in the military myself and making the decision to get out because I couldn't handle the stress on my family, um, you actually got out of the Air Force. You didn't have a problem with the Air Force. You got out to support your husband. Is that my understanding or do I understand that correctly? Yes. Um, I had big plans from the time I was in sixth grade to be a fighter pilot. (laughs) My dad flew in air shows for a living, and that was my plan Mm -hmm. when I joined the Air Force was to come and enlisted, get a degree, go to OTS, go to flight training, was going to fly F-16s. That was my plan. But then I met Brad, and um, the Navy Air Force dynamic was going to be something that was very difficult uh, to maintain a marriage with, you know, not being able to live on the same continent and things like that. We actually spent the first nine months of our marriage while I was still in the Air Force with me in Nebraska and him in Japan. So I did get out. So I could come to Japan to be with him. And um, when we were deciding which one of us should separate, it made more sense for it to be him because he had been in the military longer than I had. He was higher ranking, so he was getting better pay. He was closer to retirement. And I also had the desire to teach. So I used my GI Bill to go to school. And that's not something that he was really motivated to do. So Plus, I'm the one who, like, physically has the babies, so it made more sense for me to get out, pursue my wow. education, be a home mom, et cetera. 
so there's a uh, there's a an undertone, not an undertone, but just a. Uh, I think there's going to be a recurring theme of uh, sacrifice on your part. I know that. Um, I know that's tough to have a dream like that and to put it aside for a greater cause. And I I really do admire that. I, I do. I can't say enough because. I think, uh, and I won't, this is not why we're talking, but we're we're here, so I'm going to have the conversation. I think that um, I think that military wives don't get the respect that their husbands do, and it's I, I um, it's not right because they go through as much as anybody else. So I uh, appreciate what you do, and you're kind of like the silent partner that gets no credit while your husband gets a lot of pats on the back. So thanks for all you do. Well, I've never been accused of being silent, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So you went to you were a swimmer before though you went to England, correct? You were just kind of a pool swimmer at that point. Yes, I did. Uh, I was on the swim team and uh, played water polo when I was in high school. And I've always been a fan of water sports, um, softball, mm-hmm. basketball, things like that weren't really for me because I'm actually quite a klutz, and um, in the water you can't fall down. You can't, like, trip. You can't hit your right. face on the ground. Now, water polo brought a whole different aspect of that to me because I was a goalie, so I did get hit in the face a lot, but it was still – I just like being in the water. I feel like I belong in the water since I was no, – you know, since I started – I was about four years old. Nice. So what, what people don't understand, and, and I'm um, a little bit of a swimmer, not your level, but I love open water. Cold open water is even better, if you ask me. But people don't understand how expensive and how it's just a different dynamic. Pool swimming is one thing. Open water swimming is one thing. Cold water swimming is another thing. And then cold water endurance swimming is a whole different, like you just get narrower and narrower and smaller and a fewer, fewer, fewer people swim the distance that, that you've swum. So how do you even get your head around starting like, the idea is there, but how do you take it from an idea to, like, yeah, I think I can do this. Let's start. Like, how do you start something like that? Well, to be honest, in all of the endurance events that I've done, from running marathons to triathlon to marathon swimming, I've never actually been um, very disciplined at following a training plan, and getting started is really hard for me. I'm actually quite lazy, Um you know about my my spirit animal, my sloth dolphin alter ego that wants to stay in bed all day and eat donuts, and the other half is like, let's do something really big. And uh, once I kind of tell myself I'm capable of this, I'm going to do it, I have to prove it to myself. But it also really helps having other people to prove it to, which I know I should do things for me, but um, once I put something on Facebook, this is so silly, but once I say, hey, Facebook, everyone who's reading this on Facebook, I decided I'm going to do this thing, then I get really motivated to start because I know when people read stuff like that, I'm going to have doubters or haters, if you will, and that's really motivational to me including my own husband. Um, The first time I told him I was going to run a half marathon, he 100% laughed out loud at me, did not believe me for a second. Even the day of the race, after I had been training for it, he didn't think I was going to show up. He didn't think I was going to get out of the car and actually start the race. He had told me he would run it with me, thinking he wasn't going to have to because I was going to come up with an excuse to not do it. 
And at mile 10 of that half marathon, our first half marathon, he sat down and started crying and admitted to me that until that very moment, 10 miles of the race, he had not believed that I was going to run 13 miles. And uh, that was a really good feeling for me. Like, hey, well, I proved you wrong and it feels good. Because honestly, he had every right in the world to laugh at me because before that I had never run. I had hated running very um, openly and thought people who ran, you know, when they weren't um, required to, like I was required to run a mile and a half every year while I was in the Air Force. And that was the only running I did every year. I showed up to my PT test and ran my mile and a half and smoked a cigarette on the way to the car after I was done because I smoked the whole time I was in the Air Force. And thankfully, I just got good enough genetics somewhere that I was able to pull that off. But I hated running. And um, after my second child, when I decided to do that, he just he had no reason to believe me. But it felt really good to prove him that I that he was wrong and that I was capable. And it felt really good to prove to myself that I was capable also. And from that day on, I just kind of addicted to trying to prove to myself and other people what I was capable of. So I just kept pushing. Now, did, you run, did you run your marathon or your half marathon before or after uh, your uh, marathon swimming, your English Channel crossing? Oh, that, that was long before I got into marathon swimming. That was um, 2010. <clears throat> 2010 okay. was my first race. And after that half marathon, which was in June, somebody had asked me, are you ever going to run a full marathon? And I was like, no, I hate running. This is dumb. And then six months later, I ran the Honolulu Marathon. Nice. Um, so you're just kind of nutty. You're, um, it's, gonna, it's just going to keep coming back. But, so you made a decision. Did you post on Facebook that you were going to swim the English Channel before you had any logistics down? Or how, did, how does that happen? Yes. So after that running started in Hawaii, we moved to San Diego. And after my fourth child was born, I got into triathlon. I, that's what I asked for for Christmas two months after she was born was triathlon registration. So in the first year of her life, I um, registered for a sprint triathlon and then an Olympic distance triathlon and then a half Ironman distance triathlon that I completed right before she turned a year old. And so I I did a little bit of open water swimming with that, but mostly I trained in a pool. Uh, But each of Mm -hmm. those events was in open water. And then we moved to England. And uh, the first thing I did when I got there was find a local triathlon club. And I had never Mm -hmm. been a part of a club before. And everyone in the club was amazing and fast. And when I would show up for training events, I just felt like, ooh, I don't belong here. This is not for me. Um, but I, they, they did a weekly swim in a local river, and that's how I got into the river swimming. And then I met a bunch of other people who also swam in the river who weren't triathletes, and I was going three to five times a week to swim in the river. And um, that first summer we were in England, my husband and I took a weekend trip down to Dover and did the hike along the White Cliffs to the lighthouse wow. and It was a perfectly clear day that day. In fact, I got the worst sunburn of my life because I forgot to put sunscreen on, which (laughs) I learned about. Yes, exactly. But um, we were standing on the cliff, and you could see France across the English Channel that day. Um, You could just see the outline on the horizon. And I thought, you know, that doesn't look like it's so far away. And I thought, (laughs) you know, I'm swimming. And I know that that's a really hard thing, but I can do hard things. And I looked at him and I said, I think I want to swim to France. And he kind of laughed at me like he does. And he, the first thing he said was, how much is this going to cost me? 
which right. <laughs> was a really good question to ask because I had not considered that part when I kind of told myself, hey, this is something I want to do. And when we Did got back from that trip, I didn't know at that point. I didn't know Did anything about it. I didn't know. I didn't know how much it would cost. I didn't know about the escort boats. I didn't know about the Channel Swimming Association. I didn't know how people did it. All I knew is that people did it. And mm -hmm. um, the research led me down the path to, ooh, this is going to cost a lot of money. And uh, we had to have some serious husband and wife conversations about that. And uh, we had plans when we moved to England to visit many different European countries while we were living there because the airfare within Europe is extremely affordable. And we had really close friends who were also stationed there with us. And we had planned to trade off watching each other's kids while we went and took weekend trips every now and then. And that was one of the things on the chopping block. He said, you know, if you're going to do this and use this much money for this, what are you going to give up? And I thought, okay, those weekend trips have to go. And I was going down to London. I'm a huge uh, musical theater fan. And I was going down to London once a month to go see a show on the West End. And that got axed. And we just kind of had to make some plans go away to make the English Channel plan happen. But at the same time, I really love the idea of being in a room full of people and you saying, you know, who's been to Rome or who's been to, you know, France or Paris or who's been to Spain. And in a group full of military people who have lived or been stationed in Europe, a lot of people will raise their hands because they all take advantage mm -hmm. of that opportunity. If you of ask course. who's seen Phantom of the Opera or who's seen this, a lot of people will raise their hands. But if you're in a room full of people and you ask who's swam the English Channel, I usually get to be the only one who raises my hand. So that's what helped me decide, okay, these things can all be done later in life, but I need to do this while we're here now. Wow. Wow. So um, without getting too uh, – like, inevitably, somebody is going to listen at some point, and they're going to say, well, I wonder how much it actually does cost. Um, how much ballpark, without giving exact numbers, how much would you estimate that you spent um, training and crossing with all things involved? Well, for me – it costs a lot more than your average person who decides to take this on because I had been a stay-at-home mom for several mm -hmm. years, and um, this required a lot of training and training that would have to be done while my older two children were in school. Um, and uh, the younger two, I had to actually put them in childcare. So the youngest one was in um, the daycare on base and full-time. So my husband would take her in the morning before work and pick her up on his way home from work. And the second youngest one went to a, like a British nanny, a child minder who lived down the street from me. And that was really one of the most expensive aspects of this because wow. you, can run, you can run with a double stroller. You can do a lot of, you can go to the gym and put them in the parent-child play area at the gym while you row or lift weights. But for swimming, you can't do that with kids. And so I, we spent thousands and thousands of dollars on child care for a year and a half while I was in training every day. So I would wow. make sure they got taken care of, and I'd head to the river, and uh, that, was, that was really expensive. But if you take the child care out of it, the escort boat, depending on who your pilot is, is going to be <clears throat> between three and 5,000 pounds, 
which when you convert to dollars, um, at the time it was almost $1.50 to the pound. So oh, wow. I spent uh, $5,000 on the escort boat. And wow. that was, that's the biggest cost for anybody to do the yeah. channel. And it's the biggest limiter of people who might be capable and willing to attempt something like this and not be able to afford to do it through the proper channels. So you started, so you trained, how long did you train for? Um, about 18 months. I, I started my training, I did the Paris Marathon at the beginning of April, oh, exactly like four years ago today, I think. Is today wow. the 8th? No, I don't know what day it is. This lockdown the, shelter I, I think has me forgetting yeah, the, the calendar. Yeah, April 8th. Yep. Um, yeah, so um, I did the Paris Marathon in 2016, and that was my last long running event before I officially switched to training full-time for swimming. And so I started in April of 2016, uh, planning for a swim in July of 2017. So not quite 18 months of dedicated pool training, but I mm -hmm. hired a coach as soon as I booked my pilot boat in December of 2015. And that's when I, she was giving me ideas of how much I was going to have to be swimming. And that's when I realized I was going to have to put the kids in childcare. And uh, I was still swimming regularly, but I was also training for a marathon. So I don't say that that's when mm -hmm. my training started. I officially sure. started the second week of April of 2016. So give me an idea of what your training schedule looked like. Like what kind of distances? Were there sprint workouts? Was it all distance, or what, what, what are we talking about? Well, the sad thing about the coach that I hired, that was another $6,000 that's kind of embarrassing for me to admit out loud, um, was that she was a complete fraud and never coached me at all. Um, so I didn't really get training plans and advice and the coach relationship that I thought I was going to be getting for that amount of money out of her. Um, that was a huge disappointment, and that was also a stress on my marriage because my husband didn't want to pay that much for a coach, but I was convinced I needed it, and wow. that was a huge mess. But after I realized that she wasn't going to be actually coaching me, I um, basically got a, all the guidance that I needed from those other older swimmers who were the non-triathletes that I swam with in the river, yeah. and mm -hmm. they swam, like I said, three to five times a week just because they love swimming. They weren't training for anything. They were just in there for hours at a time. So I would just hang out with them. One of them um, had attempted a channel swim and gotten really, really close, um, like a mile from France. And so he had a lot of experience to share with me. And um, that, that helped me because he'd give me tips on stroke and technique and um, mostly mental clarity while you're in the water because this sport is really, really so mental in multiple sure. forms of the word mental. Um, Do you have a so, sense of, of how many, have you ever taken the time to add up all your training yardage or mileage just to see what it added up to? Well, a lot of my training was not actually distance-based. A lot of my training was time in the water. And I sure. did not own a smartwatch or a Garmin watch or anything like that because that kind of thing just distracts me. 
And sure. so I would just get in and I'd swim for two hours. And then I would say tomorrow I'm going to do three hours. And then I'd do a short swim on a day off, like for an hour, like an hour or less. And then I'd do, I worked up to doing six hour swims. And within the two months before my original channel swim window, I was trying to do at least a five or six hour swim every weekend with multiple two to three hour swims in between. So it wasn't really a distance thing. It was time in the water, also acclimating to the cold because the water temperature was very cold. And so I had to get really used to the colder water than what the channel would be. So I was doing long distances or long time in the water at really cold temperatures so that when I got in the channel for a much longer time, it wouldn't feel that cold by comparison. So then what was your longest swim leading up? You know, like when you're training for marathons, it's very structured and you have the longest run. And, but what was your lo- – did, how did you quantify your longest swim, your training swim? The, the, what they suggest for channel swimmers to do um, a month out from their projected channel window is to take the amount of time they expect it to take them to swim the channel and to do that over two back-to-back days. So I thought it was going to take me 15 hours. That was my, I really wanted to try and do it in 15 hours. So what I should have done was a weekend where on Saturday I did an eight-hour swim, and then on Sunday I did a seven-hour swim. And um, I tried to do that with a friend who came and actually did most of it with me, which was really helpful. And uh, the first day I did seven and then told Mm -hmm. myself I was going to do eight the next day, but then the next day I did and my shoulder was starting to bother me. I had a couple of issues with my shoulder, my right shoulder through training where I had to take some time off and I even had to get um, a steroid injection at one point because it was just the physical therapy and stuff like that wasn't helping. So um, I was really trying not does that get inside your head when you're um, when you're that's your your big swim and all of a sudden you're having issues? How does that play into your psyche? Yes, it really, really, it's depressing. I would actually cry and do this negative self-talk thing where you're like, oh, man, I just, I've invested all this time and money and training, and there's no way it's going to work now because this is just too painful. And if I have to take two weeks off of training right now to rest it, how am I ever going to be at the fitness level I need to be to complete my goal? So it's very discouraging. Um, But thankfully, I had just a huge group of people that were trying to convince me when I was totally unconvinced that I was capable of doing it in pain because pain is temporary. So when it comes to doing those long training swims to prepare like the back to back day, um, they, they say, you know, once it starts to hurt, just stop because it's better to not get all the long training swims in and avoid hurting yourself. And then, than to hurt yourself and not be able to do the big swim at all. Right. So that back-to-back swim didn't end up adding up to 15 hours like I had hoped it would. It was barely 13 hours. And uh, I knew that there was going to be a point in my channel swim. That was my biggest fear. A lot of people, there are so many factors that can negatively affect a marathon swim the day that you actually get to do it. Number Mm -hmm. one, the weather can prevent you doing it on the day you're supposed to, which is 
what happened to my original swim window. The weather was so bad all week, none of the swimmers in that window got to go, and I just had to wait on standby and standby until there was a good weather window when the original swimmers got to swim and there was still time for me to swim after they were done. And so that was very stressful. Um, But that day, you know, you can get motion sickness. Some of the feeds that you plan to take your nutrition can affect your stomach in a bad way. You can get completely for lack of a better word, discombobulated, like disoriented um, when swimming at night, if you're not practiced at swimming in the dark. Um, There are lots of jellyfish, (laughs) lots of jellyfish in the English Channel, and you could have a Mm -hmm. negative reaction to seeing. You can just get into a really dark place mentally that can mess you up. There are so many things that people, experienced channel swimmers, had warned me and talked to me about to prepare for, but the thing that I was most afraid of ending my swim early was my shoulder pain. So I went in, you know, with the, my crew having acetaminophen and ibuprofen to alternate for me if I needed it with one of my feeds. And um, I was just really hoping that that would not be the thing that ended me that day. So, and it almost was. So for the people listening who have never been involved with um, open water or marathon swimming or long-distance swimming or any of that stuff, the thing that's tough for them to get their head around is – there's not a date. There's not a, it's, it's like rain. Okay. You, you can run in the rain or the cold weather. We're talking about sea state and currents and, and marine animal life. Like it, there's so many things that are out of your control and it's logistically so much different to swim because you've got feeds and timing and the water temperature is going to determine, you know, how fast you're losing body heat and, you know, what, what do you got to eat and how long? It's just the craziest thing. So tell me a little bit about your feeds and your, fee, um, your feed um, thought process and the mentality around your feeds. Um, well, a lot of – there are some experienced channel swimmers who've done it multiple times who will do the entire thing with just water, which is insane wow. to me because a lot of the nutrition experts who study marathon swimming – You know, it's a calories in, calories out type of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. If you burn 9,000 calories while you're swimming it, you have to be constantly replacing those calories because you could get lightheaded. You could run out of energy. So you need to find something that works with your specific stomach, basically. Um, I always swam on a full stomach, and I Mm -hmm. was doing a modified – Michael Phelps diet (laughs) throughout my training because I needed to gain weight. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of triathletes with really low body fat percentage who want to get into marathon swimming will be told that they need to gain weight Um, because when you don't have a lot of body fat, you're just not very buoyant. And when you're not very buoyant, you use so much energy trying to stay at the top of the water that to get through the water, you're using, you're burning so many more calories than somebody who's a little bit fluffier, who can float mm-hmm. better and their energy is used just to pull them through the water rather than fighting to stay at the top of it. So um, I, when I started my training, I had just recently lost almost 30 pounds and gotten into really good shape. Um, when I first decided to do the English Channel Swim, I wore my seventh grade cheerleading uniform for Halloween after four kids and that was amazing for me and then to start this training and be told oh sorry you have to gain you're gonna have to gain some weight I was like oh okay cool they're opening a Krispy Kreme around the corner for my house soon that'll be that'll be fine 
I can do that. Right. <laughs> so I can so, eat other the, donuts. The, I, the body fat helps with, I would imagine, helps with the water temps too. Because what was the water temp yeah, while you swim? It's all about buoyancy and insulation because yeah. those really mm-hmm. fit body fat percentage people are much more likely to be negatively affected by the water temperature. Um, The day of my swim, the English Channel on the England side was um, just over 15 degrees Celsius. And on the French side, it warmed up a little bit as we went across, even though I swam through the night, it was just over 16 degrees Celsius on the other side, which is hovering right around 60 degrees Fahrenheit the whole time I was in there. And... um, that was a pretty comfortable temperature for me then because I was doing swims in the river through the winter down to, um, you know, five degrees or below Celsius, below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So that's not, and but, um, you don't have any relation on your body getting into water that cold can really, it'll really affect you and it'll affect you fast. So, um, I was always, eating, like I said, the modified Michael Phelps diet, um, you know, up to five, 6,000 calories a day while I was training. And um, during the long swims, as you're burning calories, you need to replace them to keep your energy level up. So I experimented with many different things, mostly things that don't require much chewing because you don't want to mm-hmm. stop and tread water and chew food before you get back to swimming, you want to dump something in your mouth and be able to swallow it almost instantly and put your head right back in to keep swimming. Right. And it's really hard to chew and breathe while you're swimming. So I, I experimented with a lot of things that other people had suggested. And what ended up working for me was alternating things like applesauce and canned peaches or pears, oatmeal and mm-hmm. um, bananas, and then race gel. So like every third feed, I'd do one of those, you know, race gels. Sometimes so one how, with like cow. Um, with all of my training swims, I would try to go the first two hours without feeding. And I would do my first at two hours and then once every hour after that. Um, but on the actual day of the event, you don't want to ever start out with a calorie deficit. So I started, my first feed was at one hour. And for the first three hours, I fed every hour. And then for the following three hours, I fed every 45 minutes. And then after hour six, I, I started doing every 30 minutes, which is not only just to replace calories, it's something that mentally helps you keep going because a lot of times your mind just goes to all these places and you're like, how, how long has it been since my last feed? How, you know, how long is it till my next feed? And it becomes that every 30 minutes you feed. And then if you feel like you're too tired or if you feel like you want to give up, you just say, I can make it to my next feed, just swim to the next feed. And that's, that's a phrase that's used a lot in marathon swimming. When people will try to Mm -hmm. encourage you, they say, just swim to the next feed. Just swim to the next feed. And so for after six hours, that becomes every 30 minutes. It's a little more encouraging to keep the right mindset to only have to go 30 minutes to the next feed and then take that feed and then say, okay, 30 minutes, I can make it to the next feed. And if you just keep swimming feed to feed, you're going to get there eventually. So, and, and I love that mindset. The thing that, you know, that I just wish I could, I could, make these people who have not um, ever done what you've done 
understand is not only is open water swimming, um, less people do open water swimming and pool swimming, and then marathon swimming is a, a smaller group, and then there's nighttime swimming. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me, because you, you swam most of the majority of the swim at night. What time did you actually start? And, and walk me through time, the timeline, of the, the clock time. I started at, I think I started at 3.20 p.m. on a Sunday, August 13th, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. three weeks after my original window in which I was supposed to swim. And Ouch. I finished at 6, oh man, I finished at 6 o'clock-ish in the morning, um, 6.01. I think Six. I finished right at 6.01 because that was 14 hours and 41 minutes. And wow. so it started to get dark um, around 8, and um, the sun was just starting to come up as I was coming into France. So it was pretty dark up until I was very close. And the sun coming up on the other side of the cliffs in France was like a huge boost for me because I could see how close I was, and right. it was it was really confusing at night because there are a lot of ships and other boats in the channel that have lights on them. Mm-hmm. So when I'm sure. halfway and I see a big tanker go by in the distance with lights all over, I think, oh, wow, France looks very close. And then all of a sudden, France <laughs> continues moving. And I'm like, oh, that's that was not France. Demor- like, that's got to be demoralizing when you, you have no sense of time, you have no sense of anything, and mm-hmm. your hopes are just kind of moved out of the way, and you just have no sense. So how do you stay out of dark places? How do you stay? Because that's, that's a lot of headspace. That's a lot of time spent in your own head, not really knowing. Yeah, I, I sing in my head a lot. Um, I would make the time go by picking any musical artist uh, who I know most of the words to most of their songs. I'd pick one. I'd be like, Madonna. And then in my head, I'd sing all of Papa Don't Preach. And then I'd sing all of La Isla Bonita. And then I'd sing all of Vogue. And getting, you know, until I run out of Madonna songs, that's a long time. I could sing Madonna songs Mm -hmm. in my head for like at least three hours. And I'd switched wow. it up to Taylor Swift or I'd switch it up to Martina McBride or something like that. And that was something I used to distract myself a lot of the time. But even then, it's really hard to avoid slipping into, oh, my gosh, how much longer do I have to go? How much longer? Right. I, I, a hobby of mine is writing song parodies. And I did that a lot when I was training. Whatever the last song that I heard in my car before I got to the river, when I got in to swim, I'd be playing that song over in my head, and then I'd change all the words to be about open water swimming or something in that genre. And um, sometimes I'd write them down. Sometimes I'd forget all about them. But it was really good to keep my mind engaged, counting syllables, thinking of rhymes, and that was something that made the time pass. So you're at night. And the other thing that people hate and why they don't swim in the water, first of all, they don't swim at night anyways, but, um, or across the, the English Channel at night. But there's um, also jellyfish. So did you encounter any animal life or jellyfish while you're crossing? I encountered dozens of jellyfish. Um, I saw probably hundreds of them, but I got over 30 stings. I kind of stopped counting at that point. 
Um, some of them were pretty mild, like I could just feel one brush across my ankle and it would sting for, you know, I'd count to 20 and count backwards from 20 and I'd be fine. Um, three mm-hmm. hours in, one big one, I didn't see it because I was looking down and not ahead, was straight in front of me and I just swam right up into it and it gave me the biggest hug. It got my eyebrows, my nose, my lips, my chin and kind of wrapped around my neck and my armpits a little bit and I had to actually rip that one off of me and that one it was a few minutes before I really got back into my groove after that because I was kind of like punching the water as I was swimming like gritting my teeth Um, but it fades the jellyfish the type of jellyfish in the English channel are different than the type of jellyfish you'd encounter like in the Kaiui channel between Molokai Mm -hmm. and Oahu and Hawaii they're not nearly as terrifying um, I would compare them to like stinging nettle if you've ever stepped on or touched stinging nettle. Um, mm-hmm. But stinging nettle is worse because you can still feel that the next day. And I was actually right. kind of disappointed when I got out of the English Channel. None of those jellyfish left a mark on me. Like I had a couple wow. little red dots here and there, but they're not the kind that leave a big lashing red mark on your body. So it was definitely possible to just grit your teeth and swim through it and I just kind of got used to it and it was kind of nice in the middle of the night I mean it wakes you up a little bit <laughs> keeps you alert that's oh okay that one it's like, yeah the, the only other sea life I encountered was in the dark I had flashing lights attached to my bathing suit flashing green lights and apparently certain types of sea life are attracted to those lights Um, and for almost two hours, I think, like time was not very easily determined, but it seemed like quite a while. And the people on the boat could see this group of fish underneath me for a while. And they said it was about two hours with a group of gar. And it was just a hundred, it was a huge school of these like creepy looking eel slash alligator if you don't know what a gar looks like, oh, yeah. Google gar because it's like a really flat, long fish, like as long as my arm, and it has teeth and a snout like an alligator or a crocodile, and they're just so creepy looking, and there were just hundreds yeah, of them, and they were made. Yes, I was, because the boat had a spotlight shining on me. Mm-hmm most of the time so they could see me in the dark um, and I could see them all underneath me. They didn't get up too close to me, but I mean, I had to be careful a couple times with my stroke. I felt like maybe I was going to touch one of them, um, but there were so many of them and they hung with me for a while. It was really interesting because I kept going back and forth between this is really cool and this, these things are really creepy. I don't know if I'm scared of them or not, but they didn't present real, any real risk. Um, the only other sea life I encountered besides the jellyfish and the gar was a cuttlefish. At one point, I, this like maybe fist-sized, squiddy-looking thing bounced off my face and released ink in the water. Oh, wow. And that freaked me out, and I kind of yelled up at the crew on the ship. I'm like, I think a squid just bounced off my face. And um, one <laughs> of my crew members saw it, and he verified that it was a cuttlefish, which I wasn't even super familiar with at the time what that was I said some right. squiddy thing but um wow. that was it was really little and so I don't think it really could hurt me so it wasn't too so, scary so just tell, 
talking. So tell me a little bit about um, the mechanics. Like how, how were your mechanics? Did you do a lot of mechanics uh, training or did you just swim and get hourly time in the water? And also in that, if you can tell me a little bit about how important it is to breathe bilaterally because um, I know that's a big debate over triathletes and uh-oh. Um, well, I was told I needed to breathe bilaterally because um, when you're swimming next to a boat, sometimes because of the wind and the waves, they need you to be on a specific side of the boat to protect you from the elements. Mm -hmm. So they want you to be able to breathe facing the boat so you can know how far away you are from the boat and keep your distance from the boat, not get too close, not get too far. So if I'm, I'm a natural left arm breather. I breathe under my left arm always my whole life and trying to breathe under my right arm was difficult for me for a very long time. And somebody told me, you need to, you need to learn to breathe under your right arm. That's very important because if you have to swim on the left side of the boat, you need to be able to breathe towards the boat. And, um, I tried and I tried and I practiced and I, I got to a point where I could, you know, breathe left two strokes, breathe right kind of thing. But I never got mm -hmm. fully comfortable breathing under my right arm all the time. And thankfully, I didn't need to because I was able to swim on the right side of the boat and breathe under my left arm the whole time, which worked out really great for me. <laughs> but, and did you um, breathe every, how often did you breathe stroke-wise? Um, I breathe every fourth, every fourth stroke. Okay. Um, there were certain times... When it comes to swimming the English Channel, the, the tide change really puts you on a certain schedule once you get to a certain point because the tide changes every six hours in the English Channel. It'll flow up into the North Sea for six hours, and then it'll switch and flow back out into the Atlantic Ocean for six hours. And if you can do the channel in under 12 hours, it works out really great for you because you start kind of going up, and then you come back down, and a lot of people – aim for the closest point, which is Cap Grisnez. There's a lighthouse there. You can see it in the dark, and it comes out to a point, and a lot of people aim to end there. And if you're fast enough, <clears throat> you can do that. But I was not fast enough, and I remember in the dark seeing the lighthouse and thinking, oh, my gosh, we're so close. I can see the lighthouse. I'm going to land at Cap Grisnez. <laughs> and that happens to a lot of channel swimmers. If you just look at a compilation of the tracker pictures of people doing their one direction for six hours and then the next direction for six hours, at the end of that six hours, the second six hours, at the 12-hour point, you're pretty much lined up with Cat Grisnez. But if you're not close enough, then the tide changes again. And when it starts flowing back up into the North Sea, you're actually being pulled away from France. And that's mm. like go time. Already been swimming for 12 hours, and the crew will tell you, well, right now, if you're going to cut across the current to get close enough to shore to actually go in, you need to sprint. You need to swim as hard as you can. And that's where the channel swim really starts for most people. And that's why a lot of people will make it 12 hours into their swim and not make it to France because that Jeez. tide change at that Jeez. point really messes up a bunch of swims. In fact, at that point in my swim, my right shoulder was in so much pain, I had been swimming with one arm for quite some time. And um, the observer and the boat pilots were both trying to tell me that I needed to get out because there was no way I was going to make it. Wow. And it was really 
emotional, mentally taxing, physically taxing, like maybe they're right, my arm hurts a lot, I could just be done right now, I'm so tired of swimming after 12 hours of swimming, I could just get on the boat and take a nap, sounds great, Mm. but I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, and because I was lucid and I was still moving, they couldn't justify forcing me to get out, there has to be like a medical situation, yeah, but at that point, I've noticed in friends that have attempted English Channel Swim since I did that and since I experienced that, I had a friend who tried to do it a couple months after me, and he was at that exact same spot when he got out. And it makes me really kind of frustrated with the crew people who say, you're not going to make it, you need to get out, because at that point, a lot of people will just believe them and get on the boat. Yeah, that seems... uh, You know, I could have very easily... I could have very easily been that person. And mm-hmm. I'm glad I kind of was like, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep going until I'm in so much pain that I can't move. I'm going to keep going until I pass out. I'm going to keep going until you have to physically remove me from the water because I can't go anymore. And um, I had just made it too far and I was too close. I had spent too much money. And honestly, back to where we started, the people who didn't think I can do it were my biggest motivators at that point. <laughs> like, I'm not going to yeah. let them be right. Pain is temporary. And then that's when I did swimming fast. I was in so much pain and I was crying into my goggles, but I picked up my speed and sprinted for uh, to the next feed for 30 minutes. And then when I got to the next feed, they said, you have to keep up this speed. And I was like, Oh, that was a really hard 30 minutes. But then I sprinted for another 30 minutes. And then the next feed, they're like, keep going at that speed. And I'm like, I don't think I can. But eventually I got the point where the current was pulling me north and into water where I could slow down and cruise in. So so how many people, um, and I don't know the exact number, if you know the, how many actual people have, have crossed the English Channel? Um, over 2,000. Um there have been almost 3,000 crossings, though, because a lot of people are just nuts enough to do it once, twice, three times, 19 right. times. And then, of course, Sarah Thomas, who did it four times at once. Crazy, just recently, right? That's crazy. That's yeah. unfathomable. Last I mean, yeah. yeah. Insane. Well, I... I, um, the, first I person you... the first person to complete it. Say that again. Um, Sarah Thomas was not the first person to attempt a four-way English Channel swim, but she was the first person to complete it. There are other crazy people who have tried it, but she was the first successful one, possibly the only successful one. Well, listen, Amy, I I appreciate uh, your time. I am just – I can't wait for the book. I can't wait for the movie um, because of all the other crazy stuff in your life. (laughs) I'm sure there will be some singing in there as well. Uh, it'll be a musical, mm-hmm. probably. I would imagine the movie of your life. But um, look, I, I hope um, I, I'm going to keep following your crazy life, and um, uh, you've inspired me um, and many other people that I don't know. But um, I love your story. I love it. You're relatable. You're human. You're a mother, service member. All these things that um, are just you're just a regular person who has done some pretty extraordinary stuff, and I I dig that about you. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, we will uh, hopefully catch up on your next adventure, but um, thanks again for the time. You have a great night. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Bye.